as we study the oldest Christian creed, oldest is debatable, but certainly the most famous Christian creed. Oldest is probably the simple creed recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. That may be the, the oldest, and that one's right there, you know, just about 20, 30 years after the, the crucifixion and resurrection recorded in Scripture. This is the most famous Christian creed, and it has endured for 1,500 years. So I'd say it's got some history behind it as the accepted statement of what Christians believe. If you've not been exposed to the Apostles' Creed, there are several things that will raise your eyebrows. If you grew up Baptist, or Pentecostal, or Assembly of God... In one of the other traditions, when you see the church standing and saying, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, uh, you have an aversion to that because of your uh, throwing off colonialism and all things Europe. Uh, And I've explained that already in previous sermons, and we'll get more to that as we get to the end of the creed where that statement is found. Uh, You'll raise your eyebrows at things that are in the section like this morning. Christ descended to the dead. Uh, if you, there, there are multiple versions of the Apostles' Creed where there's one or two words that are modernized. This is one of them. Uh, in the oldest form of this, it says that uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, not died, dead, was buried, descended into hell. That's the way the oldest version of the Apostles' Creed reads. And that's why in your King James Bible that uh, old, your old English, old, old English Bible, you'll see that phrase, he descended into hell. I'm surprised nobody sent the podcast question yet, and so I've just sent you one softball over the plate, be sure to send it in, and I'll answer it this week, but I'm not going to answer it this morning, I want to talk about the resurrection instead. We're on that section now, where we talked about Pontius Pilate last week, and why he's in the creed of all people, uh, he and Mary's names are in the creed. This morning we want to talk about, we know he suffered, we talked about that last week. Uh, He died, was buried, and he rose again the third day. Let me see if I can pick the story up and move it forward this morning. It was in the days of the Roman Caesars, so take your mind all the way back to there. Julius is now off the scene, his son Augustus is on the scene. Remember it was in the days of Augustus Caesar that he sent forth a decree that all the world should be taxed. This is your Christmas reading. And uh, then Tiberius will follow him. All the way back in the days of the Caesars, Jesus Christ stepped out onto the pages of human history. Without getting into all the details, because the creed doesn't, let me just fast forward and tell you that multitudes eventually began to follow Jesus. They came out to hear him by the thousands. His teaching was unlike anything they had ever heard. They had heard some of the same texts preached on. They had heard some of the same scriptures, but they had never heard anyone speak in toto delivery with power, with with, with amazing uh, sway and credibility over the people. They had never heard anyone speak like this, and enormous crowds gathered to hear the stories of Jesus. You can imagine then on the other side of the coin, the establishment rulers realized very quickly 
because the crowds were listening to Jesus. They weren't listening to the Pharisees. And so the establishment crowd gathered very quickly that they were losing control over the people. And what a shame that those who lead religiously, those who lead spiritually, should be leading spiritually, are worried about nothing more than how to control the people. So these establishment rulers are really in trouble. The grassroots support of, of the populace has shifted over to Jesus Christ and they've totally lost control of the people. One day Jesus did something that would change everything. It would escalate, if you would, the whole situation like throwing a match uh, on a powder keg. And that event was very carefully talked about all throughout John chapter number 11. Jesus went to a village after hearing his friend had been sick and died. He went to a village of Bethany to visit the surviving family members. Uh, it's a real moving scene in the Bible. Matter of fact, I want to remind the church, you, you have people around you right now that are hurting. Uh, I'm going to minister to a family this week that's buried five people in the last 12 months. Youngest, 22. This week we'll bury a 44-year-old who died of COVID. It's real. Don't joke about it. It's real. The families are hurting in your community. Families are hurting in your city. People you work with and people you're going to go back to school with have probably suffered in the last year in some way. Be very careful. Uh, be sensitive to that. Minister to that if you can. Pray to that if you can. Love them if you can. It's certainly what Jesus would do and it's what Jesus did. After four days he shows up in this village where his friend has died. Jesus went out to the graveside to pay his respects. He obviously died four days ago. They've already buried him. Jesus says, take me to the, to the grave. So they take Jesus out to the grave and a crowd is gathering to see who this famous person, Jesus, now famous among the common people, this common hero emerging, the people are coming to see how he's going to mourn. What's famous about John 11 is, of course, the shortest verse in the Bible that you memorized somewhere along your journey as a kid in church and spouted it you know, when you were called upon. Anybody got a memory verse and you're like, yes, Jesus wept, John 11:35, And uh, that famous verse where Jesus gathers by the tomb and with tears flowing down his face, he's mourning with the family, but then he did something that no one expected and he cried with a loud voice and he brought the man back to life. And the crowd went wild. The rumors of that event where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead at Bethany, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You're really near to Jerusalem. The temple's just a stone's throw over the mountain now. Just right there is the epicenter of Jewish life. And right there in their backyard, Jesus has now raised a man from the dead. And at that point, it was like throwing a match into a room filled with TNT. The establishment said, we have to do something and we have to do it now. 
Take this guy out. It's for the best of the country. It's for the be- our best. It's for everyone's best. Take him out. Those words are recorded in John chapter 11, verse 47. Let me read it. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court. It's the ruling body of Israel. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Let let me say it in a different way and you'll understand because of last week's message. We are losing control of the people and we promised Rome if they would let us exercise our authority, we would keep the people under control. We told Rome, give us power, let us run this little system we've got, and if we can keep control of the people, we'll have a nice little arrangement, but now we're losing control and Rome is going to squash us like a bug. So what you have happening in Romans 11 is you have the premier religion of the world, the premier monotheistic religion of its day, Judaism, joining hands with the premier government of its day, the premier empire of its day, the Roman Empire, and politics and religion joining hands in the most important event in all of human history. Finally, you get to John 11.35 and they plainly record, so from that day, they plotted to take his life. Religious leaders saying, let's take him out. Well, what a bunch of nice religious leaders. What a bunch of wonderful, godly examples of how things should happen here uh, in God's uh, world. They plotted from that moment to take him out. And now I can just fast forward the story because you know from last week, Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was arrested. He was violently beaten. He was humiliated. He was spit upon. He was hit. He was slapped. He was kicked. He was bruised. He was whipped. He was sentenced to die on a Roman cross. And after a morning and an afternoon of pure torture... In the afternoon hours, he died, and they buried him. Now, having said that, I want you now to get into the heads of his disciples. I want you to get into the minds for a moment, or into the sandals, or however you want to say it. Put yourself in the place of the followers of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, those who followed Jesus had their hopes shattered. Their dreams were nailed to that cross. They were absolutely crushed at the crucifixion of Jesus. Thousands of people, not four or five, thousands of people had followed him. Sure, 120 are called disciples here in a few pages, and you know there's... 12 apostles, and you know there's a bigger group of disciples. There's hundreds, there's thousands of people who have heard his messages, who have been healed by him. There are people now in the hundreds, let's say, more than a hundred, who've totally given themselves 
to him to be his followers. They've left everything behind to follow Jesus. They believed him to be the Messiah. He was going to rule Israel, but now he's been killed. And our hopes have been killed with him. The disciples are absolutely stunned. No one saw this coming. They are devastated. They're thinking, how in the world could this happen? What does his crucifixion mean? Certainly, crucifixion meant much more than death in this era. And I spoke about this at length last week. Crucifixion meant that you dare not resist Rome. Crucifixion meant stop it. Stop trying to change the world. The world is the way it is. Leave it alone. You are powerless to change the world. Don't even try. If you try to make things better, if, it, if you go against Rome, if you go against the establishment of religious order, you will get crushed beneath the wheels of those institutions. No one was saying, yes, Christ died for our sins. No one was saying that. No one had that understanding. No one was saying, yes, what a victory we just won at Calvary out there on the cross. No one had that perspective and that understanding. No, instead everyone was saying, what in the world just happened? We were so sure he was the Messiah. Messiah is not supposed to die. God's king is not supposed to die. Well, God's king is supposed to show up, be revealed, win our hearts, take control, and make everything right. Now, our colloquialism in America is this. Hindsight's twenty twenty, And that uh, colloquialism, that saying, proves true all the times in our lives. Quite often when things are happening, we don't see them for what they are. It is only when we look back at some circumstance or some decisions we made at some point in the past that we stop and say, oh my goodness, that was a changing point in my life. That was a defining moment of my life. And when I made that decision, it totally changed the direction and the trajectory of my life. Knowing that's true of you and I, I don't want you to be too critical of the first century Christians this morning because they didn't see the big picture. Don't hate on them because I'm not sure we would have got it either had we been there. And I'm fairly certain that we are being challenged right now to see what God's doing in our own generation and are largely missing it. Did I say that too fast? I think we are being challenged right now. We're being presented with incredible opportunities to share the gospel and to make disciples right now. But we are so caught up in things that just don't matter that we're letting opportunities, golden opportunities, slip right through our fingers. We could be changing the world as well, but instead we're just worried about things that don't matter. Part of the problem is our minds are closed to Christ. Our minds are closed to what he's doing. And Christ's presence seems to be very distant from us. It'll make sense in a moment. We're so filled with doubts. We're so filled with disappointments. 
We sing all the circumstances of COVID and the closure this and the sickness that and the loss of income this and I had to file for unemployment that and we're seeing all of the circumstances and all of the disappointments and we are down in the weeds so much we can't see maybe the bigger picture of what God is trying to do. This was certainly the case for the disciples. Certainly the case for them, especially in those days right after the crucifixion. Certainly in the three days and maybe a little bit beyond, of after the crucifixion, they had no clue what God was really doing. And we, we know that because when we read the gospel accounts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, even though they have their skeptics, the accounts ring true. The accounts ring true. When you read them, they read like real people and real stories and real responses. Nothing feels forced. Nothing feels false. Nothing feels hollow about what I'm reading. I'm reading about real people. Let me describe them this way. Really afraid. Really insecure. Really concerned about staying alive through the end of this week. You say, wow, well, they just killed the guy we follow. They just killed our rabbi. They just killed our leader, and I just assume we're all next. And if we could just stay alive through the week, that would probably be a big win for us. It reads with amazing authenticity. And you find yourself saying as you're reading the accounts, yeah, that's what I'd do. Mm, that, that sounds about right. For example, when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a division of, of infantry, it says the disciples all scattered and ran. Yeah, sounds about right. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Yeah, somebody kicks the doors down, barges in with guns, we go out the other doors and the windows. Yeah, that sounds about right. That seems like a fair response. Uh, we, we read that, that a few hours later, some of the followers of Christ sneak back, because they're outside the city of Jerusalem, they sneak back into the city of Jerusalem to kind of find out what's been happening now that they've arrested Jesus. And one of those followers of Christ slips up to uh, the gate, the outside of the high priest's house, and there's a, a fire there, and he's warming himself by the fire, and a servant girl comes out and says, Hey, I think you're one of the followers of that guy they got in, on trial in there. And what's Peter's response? Yeah, you couldn't repeat it in here. Uh, we'd have to believe it. Peter's like, I never met the man. Have no idea what you're talking about. Nope, not one of his followers never met the man. And when you read that, even though it hurts your heart, you're like, if I were there, that's probably what I would have said. Surrounded by soldiers, everybody's being arrested now, everybody's being rounded up. And they recorded themselves in their own accounts as cowards. Rings true. They recorded about themselves that none of themselves attended his funeral. Rings true. He's dead. Rome wins. Nothing ever changes. Don't try to affect this world in a positive way. We are just crushed with disappointment. Now that's kind of the backstory. Let me transition right here and say, but something obviously changed because here we are in church 2,000 years later singing holy, holy, holy and worshiping a risen Savior. <laughs> so something obviously changed. And what changed was three days later he rose from the grave. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. And hundreds of witnesses verified the facts of Jesus' resurrection 
And if hundreds isn't good enough for you, then millions and millions and hundreds of millions of lives have been transformed through a personal relationship with a living Savior since 33 A.D. And I hope you are some of them. We are living witnesses, living testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that He's alive. And that alone should be one of the reasons this morning that if you're not a follower of Christ, you should be entertaining the idea of becoming a follower of Christ today. After 40 years of living, sorry, after 40 days of living with the resurrected Christ, just He rose and then 40 days He walked the earth with His people After 40 days of living with the resurrected Jesus, those who were hiding in fear were transformed. That's for sure. In the beginning, they're cowards, they're hiding in fear, and now that they've seen the risen Christ and walked with Him for 40 days, now those same people that a month ago were hiding, expecting to die, those same people are now out on the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the message that Christ died for your sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. He is the Messiah. He is God's King. And it was so convincing that on the second page of the book of Acts, which I'm going to read in just a moment, it was so convincing that thousands in Jerusalem began to believe the eyewitnesses who said, we have seen Him and we are no longer afraid. Well, what changed their attitude in those that they've seen the risen Christ? Now, with that in mind, let me pick up maybe the lesser known resurrection narrative. It's in Luke chapter number 24. Jesus has died. He's been buried. It's now three days later. Some women and some disciples have come to the tomb and said, the door is open, the body's missing. He's not there. There was some scuttlebutt that Mary had seen a vision of a risen Christ and it seems like they maybe have dismissed her as being just a little emotional and and I don't know, you know? And uh, maybe just dismissive because she's a woman. I don't know. But maybe she's just overcome with emotions and Peter and John run down there and see an empty tomb, but they didn't see a living Jesus. And there's a difference between seeing an empty tomb and seeing a living Jesus. An empty tomb makes you want to say, who stole his body? Who broke in here and desecrated the grave? In other words, if you got a phone call this afternoon and Mount Olivet Cemetery said, hey, uh, you've got a loved one buried down here in plot number 637 and uh, the grave is open and the, the marker's knocked down. We need, want you to come down and just take, to see the situation. You're not thinking my loved one rose from the dead. You're thinking some hoodlums broke into the cemetery and desecrated the place, right? And that was kind of the response that you're getting from the disciples. Now, two other disciples, we have one of their names, Cleophas. We think the other one is Mary. But we don't know for sure, but Cleophas is one. Two disciples that are involved in this, they live northwest of Jerusalem, about seven and a half miles in a little village called Emmaus. It's about a two and a half hour walk to Jerusalem. And uh, they're so beside themselves, they can't figure it all out. They say, we're just going to get out of Jerusalem for a little bit. This is just turbulent 
feast week of Passover and unleavened bread and feast of first fruit. It's been just a complete nightmare. Our hopes are shattered. We don't know how to sort it out. We're just going to go home. And so they walk home about two and a half hours, about seven, a little more than seven miles, back to Emmaus. Let me pick the story up. And as they were walking, a stranger merges into the traffic and begins to walk beside them. That's the story, Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. You can podcast question that. I'll explain it later. 17. He asked them, what are you guys discussing as you walk together? Can I join the conversation? What are you guys talking about? And they stood still. This tells you everything. Their faces downcast. They're, they're heartbroken, ladies and gentlemen. They've been crushed by these events. And one of them, named Cleophas, asked him, Mr. Stranger, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who, don't knows, who doesn't know what's happened there in the last few days? Good night. It's been all over the news. It's the word on the street. If you just came from Jerusalem, how in the world have you not heard about what just went down? And the stranger says, well, tell me more. What things? I know. What, what, are, you, what, what are you talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one. There's a lot right there in that phrase. Man, we had hoped we'd put all, we'd all hitched our dreams to this man. We had hoped this was God's key. He sure had all the signs and the wonders and the speech and the lifestyle. And man, we were so convinced the Spirit of God was on him. And we had hoped that this had been the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day. Since all of this took place. Now you've lived so far 2,000 years on the side of the resurrection that whenever you hear the words third day, something pops into your brain. Third day. Do we have a group called third day? Third day. Do you just hear the word, it's third day. You think victory day, celebrate, resurrection. They're going to seal this with triumph. Third day didn't mean third day to them. Third day just meant another day of misery. It's been two days, and now it's been three days. We put our confidence in Jesus. We've been let down. We thought he was God's king. We're so disappointed. We thought he was going to set things right, but his beautiful life ended on a horrible cross. Verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, Peter and John, but they did not see Jesus. It's an important phrase. But they did not see Jesus. 
And he said to them, now Jesus is talking, but they don't know it's Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How would you like to be all discouraged and despondent about your king being killed and your king showing up and just rip you? Okay? Now they don't know it's Jesus. This is the fun thing. Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Isn't this the story of the Old Testament? Isn't this the story the Bible is teaching? Here's the problem. We don't know how to read the Bible. Listen, I'm meeting with 15 of our theologians every week and my thesis to them is we've not been taught how to read the Bible. We think we need to go back to the Old Testament to figure out how to dress or what to eat or who to sleep with or how to shave our head or or what are the rules for, for diet or how are we supposed to wash our hands. Let it go. Those are covenant rules for Israel at Sinai. We've not been taught how to read the Bible. The Bible's telling a story. It has a plot. It has characters. It's developing a theme. It's being retold with every new writer and brought up to speed to where the story stands. The problem is we've got the wrong set of glasses on, so when we read the Bible, we're either seeing this God who has no judgment, or or we're... I think we preached about this a few weeks ago. He's both and, in case you don't know, Exodus 34... He is who he is, and you don't have to apologize for him. You just need to accept him for who he is. Now, here's what Jesus is chewing him out for, and here's what I want to just yell at you for a minute in love about. If you want to understand what the Bible's about, then you have to get the right worldview. Let me say it a different way. My eyes are not great. And if I don't have my glasses on, I have trouble getting the text to come into focus. I can't see clearly what is right in front of my face. And so I have to either have my contacts in or my glasses on because I don't have a track record of good vision. But a funny thing happens when I put my glasses on, what's blurry and and confusing just gets clear right in front of me. We we went to the the beach not long ago and Susan had bought us some new sunglasses and uh, uh, went, went down to the beach, put our sunglasses on, and we were looking at the water, and we were saying, we've been all over the world, and we've never seen water so blue in all our lives. The sky is just incredible. The water is unbelievable. And we can see down into the... It was just amazing scenery. And something happened, and maybe sweat ran into our eyes, or I don't know, maybe we got in the pool or something. But we took our sunglasses off and we were like, oh. (laughs) And we put our sunglasses back on and we were like, oh. And we did that a few times and we realized we had bought the most amazing sunglasses. And they made everything more real, more beautiful, more clear than we ever thought it was. I would like to say more about that, but time's not going to let me. Instead, let me say this to you. You have to have the right glasses on to understand what the Bible's about, and the glasses have lenses that look like Jesus Christ. 
And if you're looking through Jesus' lenses at your Bible, you'll see Jesus in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And you'll see Jesus in First and Second Samuel. And you'll see Jesus everywhere because the story is about God's king and his kingdom being restored. The story is about Jesus. Now, if you don't have Jesus' glasses on, all you see is a bunch of confusing books jammed together about rules and regulations and a God who must be a jerk. Not somebody who's warm and loving that you want to have a relationship. You just see violence and mayhem and chaos and rules and all of that. But then you put those Jesus glasses on, you're like, oh, this is what God's doing. Did not the Messiah have to suffer and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, these are the first five books of your Bible, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So it looks like this. So Jesus, as he's traveling with these two disciples, chews them out for a minute lovingly, says, you guys are slow, slow, aren't you? You're just slow. You, if you had the right glasses on, you'd understand that your Bible, which the Old Testament is what they have, you'd understand that your Bible predicted that the Messiah would suffer and that then he would enter his glory. You have a wrong view of what you were looking for in a Messiah. Imagine that. You're looking for the wrong thing and the right thing's been laid out, but you don't want the right thing because it means that your hero who rides in on a white horse is going to suffer in order to win. See, that doesn't sound like, I mean, none of you want to pick a football team that's going to lose in order to win. You just want wins in order to win. You don't want anybody to suffer defeat in, in game two so that they get their act together in game three, four, and five and go on and be victorious. We just want wins, wins, and wins. We never want any losses or any suffering. And what's being preached in America is just win, win, win. Listen, the Bible's full of suffering for Jesus and his followers. And then the victory comes through all of that. And as they journey, Jesus is explaining this from their Bible. And if you want to know what those references could have been... He starts at Moses and goes all the way through, but Psalm 16 could be one, Psalm 22 could be one, Isaiah 53 could have been one of his texts, Genesis chapter number 3 could have been one of his texts, Genesis 1 could have been one of his texts. Listen, he just explained the Bible through a Jesus lens. Verse 28, and as they approached the village to which they were going, Emmaus, Jesus continued on as if he were going, it's been good talking to you, nice conversation. Hope it gets better for you. But they urged him strongly and said, No, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. <clears throat> so he went in to stay with them. Let me just say to you, we often talk about this at Cornerstone, just say yes. You notice that if people invite Jesus, he tends to say yes. Sir, come, my daughter is sick. Okay. Come, Jesus, our brother. All right. Lord, we're going to have a party for my Pharisee unsaved buddies. Would you come? It may get a little rowdy. Yes, is his answer. Let me just say to you this morning, if Jesus feels distant to you, open the door. Ask him to make himself real to you. Say, Lord, I throw open the doors of my life. Please come in. 
Please fellowship with me. Please manifest yourself. Please be real to me. God, I need your presence in my life. I believe you are here, but I want you to be more real to me, more present with me. Let me feel your presence. Let me be sensitive to what you're doing. What I've noticed is he gladly says yes to an invitation like that. And so, verse 30 says, he did go in. You go spend the night with him, it looks like. Looks like. And so when guests come to your house, what do you do? You put a spread out. So they put some food on the table. And these are poor village people. So it probably was very humble. There's some bread. Here's something to drink. And as they sit at the table, watch this, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread. Well, this is a change. That's the homeowner's role. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he began to give it to them. Now, as soon as I say to you, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, what pops into your brain? Sure it does. And Brother Luke has written this in such a way that he expects you to think that. Because he's dropping clues to you now that this isn't a random stranger. This is indeed Jesus Christ. But it was very interesting. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then... They don't have to make the bed because poof, he disappears from their sight. Now, let me quickly drive home what I want to say to you. This is God's remedy for our doubts. We are discouraged. We have doubts. We have struggles. And two things were opened in this moment that erased their discouragement and totally erased their doubts. Their eyes were open to the presence of Christ and their minds were open to the Scriptures. Two things were opened. Their eyes were opened and their minds were opened. And if you wonder sometimes what you should pray for yourself, here's two things you can pray for yourself this morning. Lord, open my mind to the scriptures that I might see you. And Lord, open my eyes to your presence because I believe you are here with me. Now let me show you how this works in the text. Open your eyes because God is still with us. They're having supper and suddenly Jesus breaks the bread. Suddenly Jesus prays. Suddenly Jesus becomes the host. How would you feel if you invited me over to dinner and suddenly I just took charge of your dining room? You know? And said, well, thank you. Now here's what we're going to do. And just started, you know, as if Jesus came in, sat down, and immediately began to act as if he's in charge. Why is that? Because he's in charge and he wants them to see. Now, he is in charge and it is really him. And suddenly, when he takes charge, whatever it was that they couldn't recognize about Jesus, suddenly they really see him. The voice, the face, the hands, The manner, the authority, this is Jesus. And their eyes were open to the fact that Christ not only was with them right now, He had been with them for two and a half hours as we journeyed down the street explaining the Bible to us. That's why it all made sense. This was Jesus. Poof. And then He's gone. Now that's the part, right, Letty? I saw the expression on your face. What happened? Why did Jesus disappear? 
His disciples were living through a transition. He wanted his disciples to understand that he's just as much with them when they can't see him as when they can see him. You see, they had a different struggle than you. They had got accustomed to seeing him and living with him and touching him and him being right there in the room. And when you get dependent on someone's physical presence right there, it's hard to sleep in an empty bed, isn't it? Listen, we're in a different phase of life than some of you. And listen, when, when they all run away and flee the house and it's just you and Miss Letty sitting at the table, it's going to be very quiet. And part of that is like, yes. And then part of that is like, hmm, this is weird. This is weird. And you say, what's weird? You've become accustomed to chaos. You've become accustomed to noise. You've become accustomed to setting three, four, five, six plates, seven, eight plates at the table. You become accustomed to what your life is like. And any transition is hard on us, true? This is what they're living through. They become accustomed. You want to talk to Jesus? Hey, Jesus. Hey, there he is. And now we have to get accustomed to this. Our Father, it's different. And he's trying to send a message not just to them but to us. Even though you don't see me, I am right there with you. And being a follower of Christ is to live with an awareness of the continual of presence of Christ in our lives. This was a new reality to them. Jesus is with me even when I cannot see him. Now you've never seen him, so you operate in a little different fashion. You still believe this statement, but you know that when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, God's Spirit came to live in you. And he's present with you uh, in, in spirit form. You've never seen him in physical form. Now that's what we're waiting for. We'd like to see him in physical form. Maybe you have a little advantage. You never have to go through that transition. Maybe it'll be the opposite for us. Maybe we're going to have a hard transition to see him physically. I don't know. But they had a hard transition going the other way. Now we know from the text, it's late at night, undoubtedly they're tired, emotionally depleted, they've walked seven and a half miles, they've had this emotional experience with Jesus, so what do they do at late at night? The Bible says they put their running shoes on and run seven and a half miles right back to Jerusalem. You say, why? Because now they've seen the risen Christ, and once you've seen the risen Christ, this is going to change everything for you. Christ's presence changed their downcast attitude, their their shuffle of disappointment is now turned into a sprint of purpose where they sprint back to Jerusalem. Having seen the risen Christ, what is their intention? They're going to tell somebody. And by the way, if you know Jesus, you're going to have a hard time keeping your mouth shut. That's what I believe. Uh, and I believe if you've got an ongoing relationship with someone who's so wonderful as God's King Jesus, then, then something's going to come out of you where you're going to have to talk about King Jesus to other people. Well, they're going to go right back, especially to their friends, because they know their friends are in a world of hurt tonight. Their friends are in their homes, downcast, despondent, with their feelings crushed. They don't know about the risen Christ, so we're going to go give our friends some joy and some comfort. Watch this. They got up, and they returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven, and those with them, more than eleven, assembled together, and they said, it's true. Oh my goodness, Mary, we owe you a big apology. 
I'm so sorry, Mary, that we doubted you for a minute. It's true. The Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon. We believe it all now because he appeared to us too. Verse 35, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. And while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be unto you. Now you want to get some goosebumps on your goosebumps. You're telling a story about a man who was dead for three days, who appeared to you and had dinner with you, and then you run seven miles across to another city to tell all of your friends what just happened. And while you're at the, the best part of the story, the lights went out, you know, and they heard a thump, thump, thump. You know, you're telling the best part of your scary story. Suddenly Jesus steps in the room and says, boom, here I am. Now, you talk about a dramatic entry, and you talk about God having a sense of humor. You talk about God having some fun with us. I don't think we truly comprehend that he has emotions, and that he's fun, and that he is who he is. He could have made an appearance a million different ways, and waits till they get to the climax of their story, and then steps into materializes. Now, let me ask you, was he there all the time or not? Yes. But he didn't let him see him. He materialized somehow in that room and said, Hey, here I am. Peace be unto you. And they were, and they were, and they were startled and frightened. Saying, oh my goodness, now we're seeing ghosts. If it wasn't bad enough, I'm losing my ever-loving mind now. Now I'm seeing apparitions and ghosts. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? I think he said it with a smile. He knows why they're troubled. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Look, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Okay, so now you've got the story in your mind, right? The Emmaus duo bursts into the room. He's alive. He's alive. Poof. Jesus shows up in the room. And Jesus said, let me give you some reassurance. Let me give you some proof. It is me. I'm talking to you. I am because I am. And here I am. Right here. Let me give you some second proof. Touch me and see. Let me give you some third proof. See my hands and my feet. And he could see doubt still on their minds. And he said, Peter, is that fish? Do you got any hot sauce for that? Can I have a... Listen, if you're still not convinced, pass the plate. And I will make that filet disappear. Through my mouth and into my stomach. Pass the fish, please. And he eats a piece of fish. Their disappointments are evaporating. Their doubts are evaporating. Jesus is telling the disciples, you wanted a living king and a living king you've got. I know you didn't see my suffering and I know you didn't see my death, but you have a living and resurrected and victorious king. And Jesus is very much alive and well with us this morning. The writer of Hebrews said, I will never leave you nor forsake you he's as much here for us as he was for the disciples many years ago here's something else i want to say to you he's still speaking to us 
Sometimes we act like God's out of the speaking business. God still has a lot to say to us. He speaks English, by the way, not just Hebrew. And uh, he can communicate to you. It's funny because when I deal with people all over the world and, and we'll have conversations and they'll say, well, God spoke to me. I asked Johnny this the other day when he was here. He said, you know, God spoke to me and he asked me. And I said, when God speaks to you, what language does he speak? Does he speak English? He said, no. Does he speak Manipuri? No. Does he speak Hindi? No. He said he speaks the language of my village when he speaks to me. We have a local language. Now, he's going to speak to you in English because you numbskulls like me don't know anything but English. Or somebody's going to come to me after church and says he speaks pig Latin to me. <laughs> you know, or something silly. But he speaks to you. What I'm trying to say is he speaks to you in your inner man in the way you can understand it. In a way that's personal, in a way that's intimate to you. Now Jesus starts preaching a sermon to him. Watch this. Then he said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. This is what I told you. This is what I told you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm. He's preaching to the whole group now the same sermon he gave to the guy, uh, Cleophas and Mary probably, on the road to Emmaus. Verse number 45. Then he opened their minds. Here it is again. And he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. It seems to me that being able to comprehend the Bible is a supernatural empowerment thing. So for those of you who are struggling to understand the Bible, I'm saying to you, get the right glasses on, get on your knees and say, God, open your word and show me, your, teach me, reveal to me what it is you're trying to say to me. And he told them, this is what is written the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father promised. Holy Spirit's on the way. I'm going to send you what my father promised and what Jesus promised in the upper room discourse, John 13, 14, 15, 16, this is what Jesus promised. I will never leave you orphans. I will send my spirit. God in spirit form is coming, but stay in the city till you be clothed with power from on high. So Jesus repeats the same lesson on the road to Emmaus, makes the Bible come alive by telling them the plot. Every book in the Old Testament and New Testament is about Jesus Christ. It's about God's king and kingdom story. It's about how God's kingdom got separated, heaven and earth broke apart, and how he's going to reunite it again and restore us as living images of Almighty God. And in hindsight, here was our magic word earlier, in hindsight, the apostles saw the events they had just lived through in a different light now. Now, looking back, they're like, oh, I get it now. Just like you and I do every day, right? We look back and we're just like, oh, so that's what God was doing in my life when I went through that situation. Yes, now I can see it with hindsight. And the apostles got all fired up when they saw it in hindsight. Their eyes were open. They're like, yes, we just lived the coming of the Messiah and the atonement for sins and the redemption of heaven and earth and the new kingdom is being inaugurated and the first fruits of them that slept, the first person ever to die and be raised from the dead, incorruptible flesh now is underway. We just lived through all of this 
And it gave them such confidence that they began to proclaim the gospel and take to the streets of Jerusalem. That's how the book of Acts launches. With your permission, I want to read just a piece so you'll see what happened. Once with hindsight, they saw what God had done. They saw now that Jesus' crucifixion was God's deliberate plan. Now, I think some of our congregants are still wrestling with this. Who killed Jesus? Hold on, let me show you who killed Jesus. He said, why did he die? Let me show you from the book of Acts. Peter gets up and preaches now. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. This man was delivered to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus' crucifixion was God's deliberate plan. And here's why. Because Jesus' resurrection was God's intended outcome. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. Say, why? Because he's eternal life. You say, well, then how did he die? He was in a human body. But it was impossible for death to have a hold on him because he's eternal life. And it was his destiny to rise from the dead. And in hindsight, Peter says, now we understand the whole Old Testament. Watch what Peter does. In hindsight, now I'm reading my Bible differently, Peter says. Watch this. David said about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. And you fill me with joy in your presence. Now what Peter does is Peter starts his sermon here with Psalm 16. And Peter says, you know what the resurrection did for me? Makes me read my Bible differently. I've got Jesus lenses on now, different worldview. And now when I read Psalm 16, I don't see David talking about David. I see David talking about Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. David's talking about a king who would come and die and rise again. Listen as Peter explains how this new understanding works. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and is buried in his tomb. is down the street. For those of you who went with us to Jerusalem when you went up on Mount Zion in that long coffin draped in a blue flag with a white star of David. There's David's tomb right there. You know what Peter said? Peter said, David's buried down the street. We know where his tomb is. And that's where his body was buried. Verse 30, but he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, David then spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned in the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay 
God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses, here's this word, of it. Christ died and was buried. He rose and was seen. Now, I just want to make a comment about this, and I'm going to close. If Jesus had risen from the grave and gone back to heaven without appearing to anyone, it would have been cruel. It would have been cruel for God to say, no, no, I'm out of the grave. Nobody knows where I'm at. And left the disciples weeping in Jerusalem, crushed and devastated. But instead, he appeared to them for 40 days so that they could be eye witnesses of the gospel it's not enough that jesus rose from the grave he needed to be seen so he starts appearing on sunday morning first in the garden to mary magdalene then to the apostles in the upper room cleophas and mary on the road to emmaus all of them together again he tells them to go up to galilee he's going to appear with them all again and he starts making his appearances Appears to his brother, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to brother James alone privately in an audience. To Peter privately in an audience. So more than 500 brethren at one time. To the 12, to get what I'm saying to you is he begins to appear to them in groups, in single meetings, individually. But they all came to the same conclusion. Jesus is alive and he's really who he claimed to be. Let me read you the footnote to Peter's sermon. Therefore, Peter says in his message, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. He is both Lord and Christ. He is both Savior and Lord of your life. And when the people heard this, those words cut them to the heart. And they said to Peter and the apostles, oh my goodness, we've made the biggest blunder in human history. We've been looking for the Messiah all our lives. Our fathers were looking for him and now we've killed him. Brothers, what should we do? Well, there's a question I've had to ask myself a few times. You ever mess things up so bad you just sit down and say, now what am I going to do? Brothers, what can we do? Peter tells them so clearly, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That one you killed, you're going to have to now call on him. And ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. And ask him to forgive you of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the question we struggle with. Who killed Jesus? Jesus didn't die because he sinned. Jesus died because he loved sinners. Jesus didn't die because of his crime. Jesus died because of your crimes. I want to be very clear this morning with what I'm saying. Jesus didn't die because he was weak. Jesus died precisely because he was strong. Jesus didn't die because finally the world got him and crushed him between religion and empires. No, he didn't die because he was defeated. He died because he was saying to you and to me, I'm about to secure the victory for all of eternity. He didn't die because hate wins in the end. No, he died because love wins in the end. He didn't die because of who we are. He died because of who he is. He didn't suffer 
because he had to. Oh, that's the wrong word. Jesus suffered because he chose to. This is the right thinking about Jesus. Jesus didn't die because the Romans killed him. Jesus didn't die because the Jews killed him. Jesus didn't die because together they put him on the cross. Jesus put himself on that cross. The predetermined plan of God. Now that ought to shake you to your core. Why would God have such a plan? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves his creation. How he loves his kingdom and how he loves the humans. He put himself on that cross to suffer and to die and to win back his kingdom, which includes you. So here's what we say in the Apostles' Creed. I believe Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. That's what I believe. And I pray that's what you believe. The creed doesn't have to be long, but it sure has to be personal to mean anything. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, in this moment, our hearts are knit together in this community that you are who you claim to be. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are both Lord and Messiah. And Lord, we have given our lives to you. And we have opened our hearts and asked you to be in a very personal way our Lord and Savior. And this morning as we take communion, we remember your death, your great suffering, your sacrifice, how the world was so dark and disappointing in that moment. But Lord, how we learned today that three days later you revealed yourself alive and very victorious. Father, we eat our communion, we drink the cup with that knowledge this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, open their eyes and open their mind that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, for we who are your children, Lord, we don't have enough words. We, words fail us right now to say thank you. It seems so not enough. How about we love you? How about we're grateful? How about eternally grateful? How about our lives are yours? You are Lord. You call the shots. Thank you for your plan to redeem this world and to redeem us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.